Sleeping with her friend's husband was supposed to be a harmless fling, just a little adventure to spice up her church, carpool, dinner on the table by five life. So how did this loving Christian mom turn into an axe murderer? Stick with me to the end to find out where Candy Montgomery is today. And trust me, it is shocking. But I'm getting ahead of myself. It ended on June 13th, 1980. Alan Gore hadn't heard from his wife all day. He was away on business in Minnesota for the weekend. Meanwhile, his wife Betty was home alone with their newborn daughter. Betty did not like being alone. Unfortunately, Alan's new job with the telecommunications company required him to travel more than usual. But he would call as often as he could when he was away to make her feel comfortable. Betty rarely left the house at night, so when Alan's calls went unanswered, he knew something was wrong. The Gores lived in a small town called Wiley, a suburb of Dallas, Texas. Their realtor, Richard, lived right across the street. Richard sold Alan and Betty their home in 1977. They'd been quiet neighbors ever since. Alan kept the lawn mowed. Betty kept the dogs from causing a ruckus. The next time Richard heard from Alan was Friday the 13th, 1980. Alan called, asking if he could check on Betty. Somewhat annoyed, Richard walked across the street with his realtor's key ring. He figured he probably still had the key to Alan and Betty's house. When he arrived, he found two other men snooping around in the backyard. Jerry and Lester were Alan's two other neighbors. Once he got off the phone with Richard, Alan called them too to enlist their help. Richard tried his keys in the back door while the others tried the windows. Nothing budged, so they moved around to the front. Richard tried his keys there, but he didn't need them. The front door was unlocked. He cracked the door and he called for Betty, quietly at first and then a little louder. The lights were on, both cars were in the garage, yet the only response he got was the faint sound of a crying baby. Richard found baby Bethany alone in her crib. He scooped her up and called the police while Jerry and Lester searched the rest of the house. They checked every nook and cranny, but there was no sign of Betty. Finally... Lester cracked the door to a utility room between the garage and the kitchen. He peers in and he slams it shut. He bends over, ready to lose his lunch at the horrible scene behind the door. He looks up at Jerry and he says, she's dead. Well, Jerry has to see for himself. So he opens the door and he stares down at a thick pool of blood. He only sees Betty's arm floating like a twig. He can't stand to look at it any longer. He slams the door, assuming that Betty has been shot. It's the only way to explain the carnage. Both men feel their stomachs sink when the kitchen phone rings. Hello? Lester answers. It's Alan. He's calling to check on them. He can't wait any longer. He needs to know, is Betty okay? Lester can hardly bring himself to talk. All he can say is, don't worry, the baby is okay. The police arrive to examine the scene. Betty lays in this pool of blood in the tight 12 by 6 foot utility room. The room was even tighter thanks to a washing machine, dryer, and freezer on the wall. The space was barely wide enough for two people to stand in side by side. Betty is mutilated beyond recognition. The right side of her face is missing, hacked to bits by this large, sharp object. This was no self-inflicted shotgun blast. This was a cold-blooded murder, and whoever did it wanted Betty to suffer. She was struck 41 times, 28 of those to the head. According to the medical examiner, 40 of those blows occurred while she was still alive. Police found the murder weapon half hidden behind the freezer. It's a blood-soaked three-foot axe meant for chopping wood. It's heavy. To swing it 40 plus times would require serious strength or a massive adrenaline rush. Police also find a bloody thumbprint on the freezer and a shoe print in the laundry room. They also find blood in the bathroom and around the shower drain. 
train. So whoever killed Betty washed up in the shower before fleeing the scene. The obvious answer, the one that they jumped to right away, is that Alan killed his wife before leaving for Minnesota that morning. A burnt pot of coffee suggested that she died before noon. However, his alibi is rock solid. Betty was still alive long after Alan left, and his feet were also too big for that shoe print, so they know it's not him. Based on that shoe print, they were looking for someone small in stature, either a child or a woman. The last person to see Betty alive was 29-year-old Candy Montgomery. She and Betty were close friends who knew each other through church. Betty had a lot on her plate after the baby was born. Alan was traveling for work and her demanding job as a school teacher made it hard to care for baby Bethany and her six-year-old daughter, Alyssa. So Candy was helping out. Alyssa and Candy's daughter were friends. And that Friday, Alyssa had spent the night at Candy's house and they were planning to see the Empire Strikes Back after swim practice. Candy went to Betty's place that morning to grab Alyssa's swimsuit. They chatted for a little bit and then Candy left. Betty was still alive. At least that's what she told police. But four days after Betty's murder, Alan called the detectives to get something off his chest. He had a confession, but it wasn't about Betty's death. He and Candy Montgomery were having an affair. They had been for a while. Candy met her husband, Pat Montgomery, in the early 1970s. She was a petite blonde army brat, the daughter of a radar technician who moved his family from base to base. She was used to traveling the country. She learned to use her looks and her silver tongue to make new friends and charm the people around especially the men. She met Pat at work. She was a secretary and he was an electrical engineer for Texas Instruments, bringing home a cushy $70,000 salary. That would be like making over $360,000 today. Though Pat's salary meant Candy could focus on caring for their two kids and their home. They moved to the country in 1977, 30 miles away from the big city crime in Dallas. But being a housewife got boring quickly and she and Pat's sex life wasn't that glamorous either. Their social life revolved around the First United Methodist Church of Lucas. It's where they met Alan and Betty Gore in 1977. Pat and Alan talked about their similar careers in computers, while Candy and Betty talked about their kids and how they met their respective husbands. Betty met Alan in college. He was a teacher's assistant in one of her math classes. Their relationship and eventual marriage surprised Betty's family. Frankly, they thought she could do better. Betty was considered one of the prettiest girls in her hometown of Norwich, Kansas. Meanwhile, Alan wasn't much to look at. His hairline was receding even though he was still a young man and he could also maybe have afforded to lose a few pounds in the gut area. They were married in 1970. Alyssa was born a few years later. They settled in Wiley, Texas when Alan got a job working for Rockwell International, a defense contractor and electronics conglomerate. Like Pat, Alan enjoyed a cushy salary, but Betty didn't want to be a housewife. She taught elementary school in Wiley, but came to resent her job. The kids were little freaking monsters, and keeping them in check made her bitter and tense. And at home, things with Alan weren't much better. Maybe another child was the answer? So they needed to plan this one, though. Betty wanted to give birth in the summer so it wouldn't interfere with her job. And while they were trying to, like, get pregnant sex became more of a chore than fun. But there was something else going on, something in Alan's mind, a conversation he couldn't shake. While he was having this 
sort of mundane sex with his wife, he was thinking of another woman. It was a warm summer's day in 1978. The Gores and Montgomery's were playing in a church volleyball game when Alan and Candy both dived for the same ball. They crashed into each other but laughed it off. No one else even gave it a second thought. Why would you? But to Candy and Alan, it was the beginning of a scandalous relationship. Candy liked how Alan smelled. His sweat and his cologne triggered some kind of primal lust. She'd been joking about having an affair for weeks. She and Pat had kind of gotten into this very boring sex life. And in her words, she wanted fireworks. So they'd spend the next few weeks, her and Alan, joking and talking after church. And Candy would start weaving like innocent flirtation into their conversations. Sometimes it felt like Alan was on the same page. Other times he seemed oblivious to her advances. Candy was coming up on her 29th birthday. Soon she'd be locked into her forever life with Pat. If she wanted to dip her toes in the forbidden waters, now was the time. So one night after choir practice, Candy followed Alan into the parking lot. She got into his car and spilled her guts. She'd been thinking about him nonstop. She was very attracted to him and she just wanted to get that off her chest. But without saying another word, she gets out and she slams the door. Alan's mouth is hanging open. He has no idea what to make of Candy's confession. Her words are like rattling around in his brain during his not-so-great sex with Betty. Though a week later, Alan and Candy meet in the parking lot after another church volleyball game, and she asks him just straight out, would you be interested in having an affair? Oh, Candy's blunt like that. She doesn't beat around the bush. Meanwhile, Alan is as wishy-washy as they come. Betty had just gotten pregnant again. It'd be unfair to start sneaking around. Then again, Alan thinks, Betty did cheat on me several years before we moved to Texas, and that hurt. And so maybe, maybe an affair is not a bad idea. I mean, he loved her, but he's also attracted to Candy. Oh, Candy left the ball in Alan's court. She's about to leave the car. She said her piece. But that's when Alan leans across the seat and he kisses her. That kiss sealed their fates and eventually Betty's. Alan and Candy deciding on having an affair is like a very strict, very professional business proposition. They weigh all the pros and cons like business partners discussing an acquisition. And once they decide to do it, they devise a strict set of rules. Rule number one, if either one of them wants to end the affair for any reason, it's over. Rule number two, if either one of them gets too emotionally attached, it's over. Like that's not going to happen. You know what's going to happen? Rule number three, If they start taking unnecessary risks, it's over. Rule number four, they split everything, including gas, food, and the cost of motel rooms. Rule number five, they're only going to meet on weekdays during Alan's two-hour lunch break when Pat and Betty are also at their respective jobs. Rule number six, Candy picks the motel rooms. Their affair begins on December 12th, 1978 in room 213 at the Continental Inn Motel. Candy brings lunch, marinated chicken, salad, white wine, and cheesecake. Slowly but surely, over a year's worth of every other week lunchtime hookups, Alan and Candy break every one of their rules. Their meaningless fling got meaningful. They became friends, which was even better than the sex for them. And the sex was just okay. Candy was hoping for fireworks, but that's not what she got. They looked forward to seeing each other and talking on the phone, though. Candy began leaving little notes and treats on Alan's car at work. Girl. About two months into their affair, Candy has second thoughts. She's afraid she's in too deep. She's falling in love with Alan. She wants out, but Alan pulls her back in. He says they should let this run its course. It won't get too serious if they don't let it get too serious. Candy agrees, saying, okay, 
If you're not worried about it, I guess that makes it half all right. Well, Bethany Gore was born in July of 1979. Handy hosted Betty's baby shower. As babies do, little Bethany brought Alan and Betty closer together. But the feelings didn't last long. Betty fell into postpartum depression and Alan ran back to Candy. But he's racked with guilt. How can he be sneaking off to motel rooms with her while his wife, whom he claims to love, is at home taking care of their newborn daughter? Well, he and Betty hadn't had sex since the baby was born, but Betty wanted to change that. Though she rarely initiated it, she threw herself at her husband more and more, but Alan, tired from spending the day with Candy, was not feeling it. And Betty is humiliated. She cried and screamed how Alan doesn't love her anymore. And she's still carrying some baby fat, so she gets it in her head that Alan doesn't find her attractive. There's nothing that he can say to calm her down. His rejection cut deep. Alan felt horrible. He met with Candy the very next day to end the affair. This time, Candy wouldn't let him. She called it a double standard. She was like, when I was feeling guilty, you made me stay. But now that you're feeling guilty, you want me to end things? No. So their relationship is now hanging in limbo. They're not broken up, but they're not together either. To fix their marriage, Alan and Betty attend a couple's retreat. Their friends had raved about how well it worked. And the Gores figured, why not? The point of marriage encounter is to be truthful and open about everything. But Alan can't be too truthful. And he never mentions his affair with Candy. He cannot bring himself to break Betty's heart like that. Still, the retreat worked like a charm. Alan and Betty are happier than ever. They have this glow about them that their friends hadn't seen in years. There's just one thing left to do. Candy was arrested after Alan told the police about the affair. She hired Don Crowder, a personal injury attorney she knew from church. They enlisted Houston psychiatrist Dr. Fred Fasson to dive into Candy's mind and piece together what happened that day. After hours of therapy and a little hypnosis, they learned that Candy allegedly killed Betty in self-defense. At her trial, Candy told the jury what happened that day. So, Alan was away in Minnesota. Alyssa had spent the night at Candy's, hanging out with her kids. Well, Candy knew Betty had a lot on her plate, so she offers to keep watching Alyssa the next day. Candy's kids wanted Alyssa to go with them to Star Wars that night. If it was okay with Betty, Candy was happy to take the girls. Oh, doing so would involve Candy taking Alyssa to swim practice, which she didn't mind, but Candy needed Alyssa's bathing suit. So she drives to Betty's house that morning, Friday the 13th. Betty welcomes Candy inside. They chat for a few minutes. They have some coffee. Betty is sitting behind a sewing machine. She's making some kind of yellow blanket thing. And the conversation peters out and Candy checks her watch. It's time to go. So she asks if she can grab Alyssa's swimsuit. Well, Betty doesn't answer. Instead, she looks up and she calmly asks, Candy, are you having an affair with Alan? Of course not, Candy blurts out. But Betty knows. Candy can tell. So Betty asks, but you did. At one point, yes, Candy answers, but it was a long time ago. Well, Betty gets up and walks away. Candy stands there, stunned, her whole world crashing down. She has no idea what to do next. But then Betty reappears in the doorway with an axe clenched in her hands. Don't see him again, she says, all threatening. Like a burglar with a gun to Candy's head, she instructs her to go and get Alyssa's swimsuit out of the dryer in the utility room and leave. Well, Candy's getting it out of the dryer when she turns around and Betty is at the door. She kind of corners her in this utility room. Even though she's holding an axe, she doesn't seem very threatening. Candy all of a sudden feels terrible. She can sense that Betty is about to burst into tears. So she reaches forward and she places a hand on Betty's shoulder. Like, oh, 
Betty, I'm so sorry. Those five words send Betty into a whirlwind of rage. She pushes Candy into the room and she charges at her with the axe, screaming, you can't have him. Though the women fight over the wooden handle, each gaining and losing the upper hand. Eventually, Betty gains control and she swings the axe over her head. Candy dodges and the blade bounces off the linoleum floor. It lands kind of gently on Candy's foot, but it's enough to cut her middle toe. Well, Candy grabs the blade. Betty still has the handle. They resume their life or death fight until Candy pushes Betty away and gains control. With all her might, she raises the axe above her head and she plunges it into the back of Betty's skull. Assuming Betty is dead, Candy grabs the utility room doorknob, but like a Hollywood killer, Betty rises to her feet, axe in hand. Blood's pouring from her head as she throws her body against the door. They wrestle over the axe once more, their feet slipping and sliding in the blood covering the utility room floor. Eventually, Betty is too weak to fight back. Candy takes the axe and rains hell down on Betty's face and body. She strikes 40 more times before dropping the blade. The courtroom falls silent when Candy tells that story. Her lawyer asks, when you went over there, did you mean to kill her with that axe? And Candy says, no. So why did you do it? Why did you swing that blade down 41 times? It's like above and beyond self-defense. Overkill? Because according to her psychiatrist, the attack triggered a dissociative reaction brought on by childhood trauma. The shushing sound. That's the traumatic moment. The shushing. Shushing. Shh. Under hypnosis, Candy revealed that her mother shushed her when she cried as a kid. When she pleaded with Betty to please put the axe down, Betty Shuster in that utility room. Candy testified, I didn't think, I couldn't think at all. When she came rushing back at me, I hit her and I hit her and I hit her and I hit her. So between the shushing and the fear, Candy Montgomery morphed into Jack Torrance from The Shining. Coincidentally, that movie premiered just a month before this real-life axe murder. But when it was over, Candy showered the blood off in the Gore's bathroom, and then she drove back to the church where the kids were in the middle of Bible school. She had some lunch, she gave the kids a Bible lesson, and then she took them shopping for Father's Day cards on the way home. The prosecution tried to poke holes in her story, but she didn't deviate, not once. After four hours of deliberation, the jury of three men and nine women returned with their verdict, not guilty. When the trial ended, Candy, Pat, and their kids got the hell out of town. They moved to Georgia. Four years later, Pat and Candy called it quits. Today, Candy Montgomery is still alive and working as a mental health and family counselor in Georgia. She rarely, if ever, speaks publicly about Friday the 13th, 1980. As for Alan Gore, that's a whole crazy story, but here's the recap. He married again after just three months after the trial. In 1984, child services stepped in. His two daughters were being abused and neglected. In 1988, Betty's parents adopted and raised them. In an interview they did with the Dallas News, the girls talked a little about the kind of abuse they went through after their mother's murder. Just sad, bizarre stuff. Allegedly, their stepmother, this woman named Elaine, you're not gonna believe this, she made 10-year-old Alyssa read the true crime book, Evidence of Love. It's all about their mother's murder and their father's affair, complete with mandatory book reports after every chapter. And that was just one horrific 
punishment. Alan and his new wife allegedly dished out. Stuff like standing in a cold shower with their feet in ice cubes was another. So after the little girls escaped Alan's custody, things got better. They graduated at the top of their classes, they earned college scholarships, and they went on to happy marriages with kids of their own. Today, Alan lives in Sarasota, Florida. His daughters live in Betty's home state of Kansas. If you ask them, Candy got away with cold-blooded murder. Their mother's killer was portrayed by Jessica Biel in the 2022 Hulu series Candy, and then Elizabeth Olsen donned the role in the 2023 HBO Max series Love and Death. The real-life Candy Montgomery very emphatically had nothing to say to either actress or reporters who come calling for a comment. But what do you think? Did Candy Montgomery kill Betty Gore in self-defense, or did she decide to murder her only roadblock to true love? Let's talk about it in the comments. And that's your recap. Thanks for hanging out with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, go ahead and tap that subscribe button so you never miss a story. But don't go away. Catch up on more recaps right here, right now. Until next time, take care.